This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. The streets of 1930s Chicago were desolate. Boards covered storefront windows. Trash blew across the pavement. People stood in soup kitchen lines for hours at a time just to get a bite to eat. The Great Depression had come, bringing sweeping desperation to Americans all across the nation. Poverty and starvation had become commonplace and devastating. People longed for a relief to their suffering, an end to their pain. They wished to be free from the world and all its evils, shouting to the heavens for an emissary to take them to a better place. Then, from out of the darkness, it seemed the heavens had answered their cries. Two earthly angels dressed entirely in white began calling out to the needy, "'Come to us and find the secrets of happiness,' Come to us and we will show you the God inside yourselves. The public flocked to the couple, absorbing their words with the utmost desire. They believed Guy and Edna Ballard had been sent to save the world. But beneath their angelic facade... The Ballards were more like demons. In the country's darkest time, they came to take all they could from those who had none. And sadly... They succeeded. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we take a look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Cults for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This week, we're taking a deep dive into the launch of the I Am movement. 
In this one-part episode, we'll learn about Guy Ballard's childhood obsession with finding secret treasure and how that shaped the religious teachings he would bring to the world. On July 28, 1878, Guy Warren Ballard was born in Newton, Kansas. Not much is known about his early life. Even his parents' names are unknown to us at this time. However, we do know that Guy proved himself to be a precocious boy. He was known to be obsessed with visions of buried gold and jewels, and allegedly spent many of his childhood hours reading library books about gold or digging in the ground looking for a vein of his own. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. An article published in the American Journal of Sociology titled The Structural Sources of Adventurism, the Case of the California Gold Rush, examined what caused the California Gold Rush, as well as the mentality of those who obsessed over it. These prospectors were motivated by a sense of adventurism, defined as the willingness to take risks in business or politics. Guy not only dreamed of riches, but he dreamed of finding those riches by taking massive risks. It's important to note that he did not actually take those risks. This likely indicated that he had a fairly comfortable upbringing. Studies show that social structure can influence the amount and kinds of risks people take. Because Guy's social structure was relatively stable, he was not willing to take the risks he dreamed of. Still, Guy's fascination with gold and shiny things persisted as he aged. He attended and graduated high school, then attended college. All the while, he dreamed of a golden hoard somewhere out in the wilderness, waiting to be claimed. We don't know what he studied at college, but he likely earned some form of engineering degree, as he became a mining engineer shortly after graduating. Little is known about his early career, but as the years went by, his trail eventually brought him... To Chicago, Illinois. While wandering the streets of Chicago, Guy supplemented his income by selling stocks in mines out in California. It's unclear how he became involved in this line of work, but it seemed clear that Guy's fascination with all things gold had persisted well into his 30s. His life in the Windy City was relatively unremarkable until something made of gold caught his eye. One day, as he strolled across a Chicago sidewalk, Guy noticed something gleaming in a storefront window. It was a massive golden harp, one of the most beautiful instruments he had ever seen. Its brilliance and its hue called out to him, perhaps causing his mind to race with excitement at the sight of its glowing frame. He rushed inside, desperate to learn more. The store attendant directed him towards the harp's owner, who had a studio on the second floor. Excited and eager, Guy hurried up the steps. He opened the door to the studio, only to see the most beautiful woman he had ever seen, Edna Ann Wheeler. Guy was immediately struck by her appearance. He inquired about the harp, only to find out that Edna was a concert harpist of some renown. She had even played for the Duke of Wales. As the two spoke, it said that they felt an immediate attraction. Their chemistry was undeniable from the very beginning. By the end of their first conversation, Guy had already asked Edna to join him on a romantic date. She agreed. 
and the mining engineer felt that he had finally struck gold. Their connection was assisted by their shared background. Edna was also from a small town in the Midwest, Burlington, Iowa. Her parents encouraged her to study the harp and the piano. And by 1912, 26-year-old Edna was already a professional concert musician, making a name for herself in Chicago. Further cementing their relationship was a mutual desire for fame and riches. Guy and Edna dated for several years, and their chemistry was undeniable. Eventually, Guy proposed, and the couple got married in 1916. Guy was 38, and Edna, 30. The couple had a beautiful honeymoon, but their marital bliss soon hit a speed bump. The United States became embroiled in World War I. As the war effort raged on, many American men were conscripted into the military. Guy Ballard was among them. Little is known about Guy's military record. However, we do know that he did not serve until the end of the war. Instead, he returned to Chicago in the early months of 1918. Guy and Edna's reunion was passionate and romantic, and it quickly bore fruit. By the end of the year, Guy and Edna had their first child, Donald Ballard. Guy continued working as a mining engineer and selling stocks in gold mines located on the West Coast. As 1918 passed into 1919, and 1919 turned into the 1920s, the Ballards' lives drastically began to change. The Ballards found themselves becoming embroiled with the occult. Coming up, Guy Ballard develops his first cult teachings. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. After World War I, Guy Ballard returned home to his wife and young son in Chicago, Illinois. But soon after, Edna Ballard's career as a concert musician began to wane. She supplemented her income by getting a job at the Philosopher's Nook, a bookstore devoted to occult literature. While working at the store, Edna became heavily involved in the occult scene. She even became an editor for a local publication called The American Occultists. As Edna went deeper and deeper into the occult world, Guy followed close behind her. The couple began studying Theosophy, a religious movement that set the stage for many New Age religions that followed. The term Theosophy covers a broad range of philosophies and religions that all have several basic beliefs in common. The first is that beneath the physical plane of existence lies a deeper spiritual plane of existence. This spiritual plane can be reached by those people who are capable of transcending normal human consciousness. This can be accomplished through intuition, meditation, and revelation. When contact with the spiritual plane is achieved, practitioners can gain mysterious insight into the true nature of the world. With this immense spiritual insight, Theosophists believe they can gain great psychic or spiritual powers, which they can use to influence the real world. 
Guy Ballard took this particular idea to heart. He became a practicing fortune teller and medium. He offered his services to anyone who desired, and he performed palm readings, rituals, and seances for profit. Ever in the search of his hidden fortune, Guy also attempted to use his psychic powers to will himself to find a literal mine of gold. Sometime in the early 1920s, his dreams started to seem like they might be coming true. One of the Ballard's acquaintances, who they had likely met through Guy's work, offered to finance a trip to California. She wished for the Ballards to stay at a cabin in the mountains and search for goods. The cabin just so happened to be next to an actual gold mine. Seeing his opportunity to strike gold finally arrive, Guy excitedly moved his family to the California cabin. There, his fascination with finding gold apparently turned into an outright obsession. Every single day, Guy roamed the mountainside searching for his gold. He became convinced that it was his destiny to find himself a vein. Yet as his search continued, funding for the trip ran thin. It's unknown how long he searched the Sierra Mountains, but eventually he and his family were forced to return to Chicago with no gold in their possession. But Guy hadn't given up on his dream. He continued to buy and sell stocks in gold mines out west, making his living off of his sales. Unfortunately, most of the mines Guy was selling stocks in were either fake or already emptied. The stocks he was selling were worthless, and he likely knew it. He amassed a sizable portion of wealth, but as mines began to fail, his wealth quickly turned into debt. When the people he owed money to came looking for him, they took a closer look at his bookkeeping. They discovered he had never intended to pay them back at all. He was running a pyramid scheme. Guy's debtors brought this information to police. And in the early months of 1929, the Chicago courts indicted Guy Ballard for obtaining money and goods by means of the confidence game. A warrant was issued for his arrest. As the country began to slip into the Great Depression, people were desperate to reclaim what money they could from Guy's pockets. But before the police could find him, he abandoned his family and fled west to California. Edna didn't hold this against him. She knew he had better things to do than go to prison. And so the married couple lived half a nation apart, with Edna raising Donald all alone. While Guy hid out in California, new occult writings swept the nation. In March of 1929, the American magazine published a story called Seven Minutes in Eternity, written by spiritualist and fascist political leader William Dudley Pelley. In the article, Pelley claimed to have had a revelatory out-of-body experience. One night, as he fell asleep in the Sierra Mountains, his consciousness simply left his body and began to float above the ground. His consciousness then awoke in a strange room with two glorious persons there to meet him. He felt exhilarated and refreshed, and as he took a closer look at the people, he realized that they were vaguely familiar, definitely great men of history whose names escaped him. Seeing these dead men in front of him, Pelly knew he had somehow entered the spiritual plane of existence where the dead keep on living. He also realized that he was standing with these two great men of the past because he himself would soon become a great man. 
When the experience ended, he returned to his body. He claimed that he had a new psychic power. Pelly experienced what psychologists call an out-of-body experience or an autoscopy, the experience of seeing one's body in extrapersonal space. But according to a study titled Out-of-Body Experiences and Autoscopy of Neurological Origin, there isn't enough scientific examination to conclusively explain these phenomena. However, the limited research that has been done suggests that out-of-body experiences are more common in people who have suffered brain damage to the temporoparietal junction of the brain. This portion of the brain often controls our own perception of our bodies, and thus brain damage might explain why people sometimes feel detached from their bodies. As such, it's entirely possible that William Pelly's experiences could be explained by brain damage that he was unaware of sustaining. It's also possible that he was simply making the story up. Whatever the truth, Pelly's article struck a chord with the American audience. After his story was published, psychics from all across the nation started writing letters to the magazine, sharing their own personal out-of-body experiences. Many of them pleaded for Pelly to continue writing articles so they could learn all he had to offer. This birthed Pelly's Silver Legion, a fascist group of people who followed his teachings closely. As he wandered the California mountains, evading the police and searching for gold, Guy Ballard most certainly became familiar with the group. In 1930, 52-year-old Guy decided to turn his Californian exile into a spiritual journey of his own. Not much is known about what Guy actually did in the mountains of California. However, when he returned to Chicago in 1932, he had plenty of stories to tell. He explained to Edna and anyone who would listen that instead of gold, he had been searching for a spiritual enlightenment all along. He claimed that he had roamed from mountaintop to mountaintop, being pulled by some unknown calling that he felt growing deep within his soul. As he wandered the wilderness, he drew ever nearer to Mount Shasta, a snow-capped mountain in the northernmost part of California. He felt drawn to that glistening snow and began to make his ascent up the slopes. As he walked, he ran into a second man, also hiking up the path. Yet there was something peculiar about this man. He was a stranger, but still somewhat familiar. And he was walking straight towards Guy. Intrigued, Guy hailed the man, and the stranger answered. He introduced himself as the Count of St. Germain, and Guy was immediately starstruck. The Count of St. Germain was a philosopher who wandered Europe in the 1700s. He was notorious for obfuscating his own origins, deliberately lying about who he was and where he was from. But his clear wealth and intelligence gained him popularity among the European nobility of the time. The Count died in 1784, but his legend lived on, particularly among theosophical crowds. Myths that he was immortal, an alchemist, and even a prophet spread throughout the world. Myths that Guy Ballard had surely heard. Thus, when Guy Ballard ran into the Count of St. Germain on the side of Mount Shasta, he was both shocked and greatly intrigued. Guy asked him what he was doing on the side of a mountain. 
the Count explained that much like Guy had been searching for gold, the Count had been searching for something else just as fervently. The Count said that he was a member of a supernatural hierarchy called the Ascended Masters. This hierarchy was composed of all the greatest men who had ever lived, including George Washington, Jesus, and the Buddha. And they scoured the earth looking for people to join their ranks. The Count added that he had been searching Europe for centuries looking for someone worthy of being told the great laws of life. Yet for all his searching, he never found a single European worthy of his teachings. Disappointed in Europe's distinct lack of enlightened men, the Count traveled to America to find the right man, and his journey had brought him to Mount Shasta, specifically to Guy Ballard, the first worthy man he had ever met. Guy was initially shocked to hear the Count layer him with such words of praise. He initially pushed back, saying the Count must surely be mistaken, but the wise man pressed on. He declared Guy to be the messenger of the Great White Brotherhood for the Seventh Golden Age, a coming millennial era of spiritual enlightenment. After making this declaration, the Count pulled a chalice from his belongings and insisted that Guy drink from it. Guy drank from the cup, saying it was filled with pure electronic essence. Once he had finished the drink, he felt his consciousness leave his body, and together he and the Count whizzed through time and space, visiting fabled cities and discovering a cache of gold and jewels. Thus Guy had finally found the gold he had always been searching for, to share his joy and newfound enlightenment, he returned to Chicago to his wife and son to spread the good news. He was now an ascended master. He could save them all. When we return, Guy Ballard's stories take hold in frightening ways. Now, back to the story. In 1932, 54-year-old Guy Ballard returned to Chicago from a three-year-long journey through California. He claimed to have met with the Count of St. Germain, a well-known theosophical figure, and he alleged the Count had declared him an ascended master, someone who could teach the world the great laws of life. Guy's wife, 46-year-old Edna, and their 14-year-old son, Donald, were all too eager to spread Guy's new message. The Ballards established the St. Germain Foundation and the St. Germain Press, both dedicated to spreading Guy's claims throughout the city of Chicago. Guy started giving public lectures, telling his tale to any and all who would listen. He called himself and his wife anointed messengers, sent by the Ascended Masters, a group of human beings who had ascended to godhood by leaving the cycles of re-embodiment and karma. Among his mystical teachings about the spirit realm, Guy weaved in a patriotic message. He claimed that these ascended masters were telling him that the United States had a special part in the world plan. At that point, Americans were sunk deep into the Great Depression, and people everywhere were desperate for some sense of meaning and some way to improve their lot in life. As such, many people were willing to give Guy's story a chance. Very little specifics are known about how the Ballards built their following, but as they spoke, people listened. 
As their audience grew, the Ballards pushed their teachings into stranger and stranger territories. Guy claimed that he was a reincarnation of George Washington and that it was his destiny to lead America into a brighter age. He also taught his followers that if they devoted themselves and their belongings to him and his teachings, he could open their minds to the great I Am Presence. The name I Am is a reference to Exodus 3.14, the moment where the God of the Hebrews tells Moses, I am that I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. In Jewish and Christian tradition, I am is, therefore, one way God refers to himself, instead of giving himself a name. By co-opting this idea, the Ballards claim that if a human being began calling themselves I Am, they could access their own inner godhood, what they called the mighty I Am Presence. Quiet contemplation and repeating affirmations could also help one reach his or her higher self. One such affirmation was, quote, In the name of my mighty I Am Presence, I refuse to accept the tyranny of my human consciousness. Beloved Holy Christ Self, you step forth in your blazing reality and be the only presence acting here. Once a person had made spiritual contact with the I Am Presence, they could use this newfound power to increase the number of good things in the world and decrease the number of bad things in the world. Typically, this meant they could will their desires into existence and avoid troubles in their personal lives. The self-affirming mysticism of the I Am movement, combined with its patriotic overtones, struck a deep chord in the poverty-stricken Americans who were living through the Great Depression. As they desperately tried to learn more from Guy and Edna, the Ballards tried to spread the reach of their message as far as possible. In 1934, the St. Germain Press began publishing Guy Ballard's first written teachings in a pamphlet titled Unveiled Mysteries. He wrote the pamphlet under the pseudonym Godfrey Ray King, which he claimed was his true spiritual name. They sold these pamphlets wherever they could, often instructing current members of their organization to aggressively pursue non-members on the streets. They were told to charge $2.50 per pamphlet, approximately $37 today. This was an incredibly high price, especially considering the fact that they were being sold during the Great Depression. Yet despite the cost, these pamphlets sold like hotcakes. The masses were so desperate for help. As the St. Germain Foundation grew and the Ballard's wealth along with it, Guy and Edna decided to take their teachings to greener pastures and return to the mountains where it all began. In 1935, 57-year-old Guy and 49-year-old Edna moved their organization to Los Angeles, California. Out west, their foundation boomed. They printed more books through their publishing company and attracted crowds of up to 6,000 people. As they drew in more people, they collected more money. With their excess income, they made their presentations extravagant and flashy. Journalist Cecilia Rasmussen described the transformation in a Los Angeles Times article, writing, for a short time, the inner circle found a home in a large, rambling tabernacle, from the top of which a blazing neon light flashed, Mighty I Am. Buxom beauties, clad in evening gowns with orchid and gardenia corsages, ushered in the faithful. 
While it may seem counterintuitive for the Ballards to spend so much money making their religion look glamorous, some studies suggest this may have long-term benefits. A study titled Social Benefits of Luxury Brands as Costly Signals of Wealth and Status found that luxury consumption can be a profitable social strategy because conspicuous displays of luxury qualify as a costly signaling trait that elicits status-dependent favorable treatment in human social interactions. In other words, by displaying such wealth and glamour, the Ballards were increasing the odds that the people who attended their services would treat them more favorably. It seemed to have worked. By 1938, their I Am movement had garnered over one million followers worldwide, mostly in Los Angeles and Chicago. Many of these people gave all they could to the Ballards in order to gain enlightenment. The Ballards became wealthier than they had ever imagined. It seemed Guy had finally found his gold mine. And yet, he would not be around long enough to enjoy it. In 1939, Guy's heart began showing some signs of trouble. Naturally, the Ballards kept his health issues a secret from his followers, yet they could not hide his illness forever. At 5 a.m. on December 29, 1939, Guy Ballard died from arteriosclerosis at the age of 61. With Guy's death, members from all over the world began to question their commitment to the movement. After all, Guy had claimed to be an ascended master, an immortal spiritual god, and now he had died, like a normal human being. But Edna was quick with an explanation. She wrote to her followers that while Guy had physically died, his spirit was still alive. She claimed that he had spoken to her and instructed her to continue teaching in his name and in the name of Saint Germain. Edna's new religious claims managed to stave off the loss of members, at least for a moment. But dwindling membership was soon the least of her problems. Several members of the movement who lost faith after Guy died filed lawsuits against the I Am movement for defrauding them out of their possessions. By 1942, the damages claimed in these lawsuits totaled over $3 million, more than $47 million today. Given these extensive damages, Edna, her son Donald, and others from the inner circle of the movement were charged with 18 counts of fraud by the Los Angeles state attorney. The courts claimed the teachings of the IM activity literally were unbelievable, and that leaders were defrauding people by selling them a religion they knew to be false. During the lengthy trial, hundreds of Edna's followers surrounded the courthouse and chanted in support of their leader. Inside the courtroom, Edna's defense lawyer insisted that she must be declared innocent because the United States' safety depended on Guy Ballard's divine power and influence. Reportedly, lawyers claimed that the deceased Guy Ballard was in control of an invisible force called K-17. Supposedly, Guy had used that force to miraculously sink a flotilla of undetected Japanese submarines ready to attack the United States. While they may or may not have said it outright, the defense seemed to heavily imply that if the courts found Edna guilty of fraud, Guy would simply allow the next fleet of Japanese submarines to attack U.S. soil. 
In a bizarre twist of logic, they tried to vacate the fraud charges by extorting the safety of the nation. Prosecutors on the case had nothing to say on the matter. They declined to produce any rebuttal witnesses against the K-17 claims and simply allowed the absurdity of the defense's arguments to speak for itself. However, they did bring several former disciples to the stand to testify to the I Am movement's failings. According to an article on I Am in Los Angeles Magazine, one man claimed the Ballards promised to restore the eyesight of a blind senator, but failed. A second former member, a destitute 75-year-old woman, was assured she would be taken care of for the rest of her life and guaranteed protection in the next world, but only after she had given the cult thousands of dollars worth of jewels and cash. Faced with these accusations, Edna Ballard angrily objected. She argued, we're no more obliged to return the money or pay her bills than any ministers would be. If she'd brought as much love and blessing into the world as I have, she wouldn't be in this fix. Before the judge sent the jury to deliberate, he gave them a set of instructions. They were to consider whether or not they felt Edna Ballard was preaching a religion she didn't genuinely believe in. If so, they must find her guilty. After having seen Edna's cruel outburst, the jury convicted her of multiple counts of fraud. But Edna and her lawyers weren't done fighting. They challenged the conviction. They believed it was improper for her criminal guilt to be dependent on something that was entirely unprovable. No jury would ever be able to tell what she did or didn't believe and therefore they could not find her guilty of fraud beyond a reasonable doubt. Unlike some of the other arguments heard in her trial, this train of thought actually found some purchase in the Ninth Circuit Court. A judge overruled her guilty conviction. Upset that Edna might walk free, the prosecutors filed their own appeal, sending the case all the way up to the Supreme Court. The highest court in the land debated for days on the issue. It was a high-profile case, closely watched as it involved questions of religious freedom. In United States v. Ballard, the Supreme Court vacated the fraud conviction in a landmark decision of 5-4, to ruling that the question of whether or not the Ballards believed their religious claims should not have been submitted to the jury. They wrote that, people cannot be made to prove their religious beliefs in a court of law. Edna and her followers rejoiced upon hearing the news, but they hadn't escaped their legal troubles yet. The state of California took Edna back to court. This time, they left all questions of religious validity out of the proceedings. Instead, they argued a standard trial to determine if simple fraud had been committed. Upon a re-examination of the evidence, a second jury also found Edna and the I Am movement guilty of fraudulent activity. Once again, Edna appealed. This time, she claimed that because the jury was entirely composed of men, she had been denied a fair trial. Other women may have been more inclined to believe her. Surprisingly, the higher courts felt her argument was persuasive once again. Her conviction was overturned a second time. At that point, the prosecutors were exhausted of trying to put Edna behind bars. Instead of appealing to have the conviction upheld, they simply allowed Edna to go free. 
Ecstatic, Edna and her son Donald decided to take advantage of their freedom and move far away from the scandal that had haunted them in Los Angeles. They took 300 of their most loyal followers and moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico, a place where they remained for quite some time. Following Guy's death and the scandal of the trials, the IM movement greatly dwindled in size. Edna and Donald did what they could to maintain membership, primarily by continuing to write books and by running a radio show devoted to their teachings. But their numbers continued to steadily decline. Edna died of natural causes on February 10, 1971, at the age of 84. Donald claimed she had ascended to the ranks of the heavenly hosts, just as his mother claimed Guy had done before. Not much is known about what Donald Ballard has done following Edna's death. He continued to lead what stragglers were left of the I Am movement. But at some point in time, he most likely died himself. The I Am movement is also considered a progenitor of many modern New Age religions and positive thinking movements. It's credited with impacting the human potential movement, religious science, and the church universal and triumphant. With all of the Ballards gone from this world, the I Am movement is but a shell of what it once was, yet it still manages to fight on. To this day, I Am classes are held in over 300 locations all across the globe. A headquarters is maintained in Illinois, and an annual pageant is held at the foot of Mount Shasta, telling the tales of Guy Ballard. Perhaps Guy Ballard truly did find his treasure in those foothills, However, some might argue that what glittered was fool's gold. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back with another episode next Tuesday. You can find all episodes of Cults and all of the podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Juan Borda. This episode of Cults was written by Lori Balaban. With writing assistance by Abigail Cannon and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.